The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Joe Schuldenrein, your host, and I want to welcome you to the second episode of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I also want to thank the listenership for a lively response to the initial program on Indiana Jones and the Archaeology of the Bible. The input was as provocative as it was thoughtful, and I want to encourage the audience to continue to send in emails and call in at 866-472-5788. Again, that number, 866-472-5788. The other day I attended a small social gathering, kind of a small fundraiser, and when I introduced myself as an archaeologist, several folks casually asked me where I had practiced my craft, And I responded that in addition to South Asia and the Middle East, I had worked extensively in North America. They politely nodded, and one guy got especially animated and recounted how amazed he and his family were when they went out to Arizona and Colorado to visit Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon. I awkwardly responded that, uh, yes, indeed, those are phenomenal places, but that I had done much of my work in the Midwest and the Northeast, fully hoping to expand the dialogue with this guy and perhaps discuss some interesting issues in archaeology. Instead, I got a polite, oh, I see, and the guy gracelessly worked his way back to the bar. That got me to thinking about how focused the American public's grasp on Native American archaeology is, and to my chagrin, what really grabs their interest is the magnificent art and architecture that marks the achievement of ancient peoples. Ultimately, that takes us to the richest and most visible record of Native American culture and heritage in the United States. In short, the North, in North, from North America, most archaeological roads point dramatically to the greater southwest, specifically to that magnificent reach of desert and mountains extending across New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona. In subsequent episodes, we'll be discussing some of the finer points of archaeology and the extensive evidence that scientists have discovered both underground and above the surface in all regions of the New World. But in this second program, I think it's appropriate that we continue our exploration with that most vivid evidence of the achievements of Native Americans as they're preserved in the western third of the North American continent. We have called this show Yin Yang and the Amazing Archaeology of the American Southwest. 
The reason for that is that I would like to introduce you to the ways in which archaeology is currently practiced in the Southwest and elsewhere in the United States. Much of the actual data collection and excavation is currently performed by private companies and organizations who would do this work in compliance with preservation laws and advance in advance of land development. That would be our yin. The significance of these data, for example, the patterns of architecture and the social organizations that these monuments and structures represent are assembled and interpreted into big picture scenarios by scholars and scientists at universities and research institutions, and that would be our yang. So those broadly divided tasks clearly intersect, but they generally offset the ways in which archaeology is generally practiced. My guest today will guide us and assist us in unraveling the mysteries of the ancient cliff dwellers at Mesa Verde and elsewhere across the desert southwest. They represent both segments of the archaeological community. Corey Bretternitz, our yin, has participated in some of the largest regional projects, including the National Park Service Chaco Canyon, Chaco Canyon Project in New Mexico and the Dolores Project in Colorado. He has worked for academic institutions, museums, the Navajo tribe, and private consulting firms. For 25 years, Corey owned Soil Systems Incorporated, a private firm that conducted some of the largest excavations tied to the Hohokam culture in, central, in Arizona. Steve Lexen, Curator of Archaeology at the Museum of Natural History and Professor at Anthropology at the University of Colorado. He's directed more than 20 archaeological projects across the Southwest. Dr. Lexen's publications include numerous articles and several major volumes, including A History of the Ancient Southwest, The Architecture of Chaco Canyon, and The Archaeology of the Mimbres Region. Steve lectures extensively on Southwestern archaeology at professional and popular venues. Gentlemen, welcome, and thanks so much for participating in our show. Glad to have you here. Good to be here. Thank you. We'll get into the various aspects of archaeological practice in a bit, but Steve, let me turn to you first and ask you to provide sort of an overall historical view on Southwestern archaeology. I think many of our listeners may be familiar with Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon, certainly as names. These are considered prehistoric sites. And, and what I'd like to just start in with, what does prehistory mean? How and when were these sites discovered by Europeans? And how did uh, southwestern archaeological research emerge from that? If you could just give us a brief background here. Well, historians write history from written documents. And, of course, prehistory the implication there is before writing, before written documents. Uh, none of the southwestern tribes had written languages. Um, and so history, in a very strict sense, starts when the Spanish arrive. And effectively, that's around 16, you know, 1600, give or take a few years. Um, that term prehistory is problematic in that uh, they're descendants of the people that built Mesa Verde. The Indian tribes are still around. They're still here. And they have histories. They have uh, very rich traditional histories. So... The uh, Pueblo people of New Mexico and Arizona, who are the living descendants of the folks that built Mesa Verde, um, have some issues with that term prehistory when applied to their past, because they, they had history that just wasn't written down. Uh, so there's some kind of conflict between the actual uh, interpretation of what prehistory means between, say, Europeans and Native Americans, correct? Uh, yeah, it's just terminological. I mean, it's not a conflict in any, any vicious sense, but uh, yeah, um, I think Pueblo people would say, yeah, we, we do have history, so it's this prehistory business. But from our perspective, it's before written records, and that was part of the romance and the mystery of the whole thing. When uh, um, 
archaeology started in the Southwest, there were a few people that came out uh, that were associated with universities and government agencies that reported back to those agencies and universities. But the first big splash, really big splash, came out of Mesa Verde um, at the end of the 19th century that was discovered by a, um, a couple of cowboys, at least as far as, as the East, East Coast was concerned. They discovered it and publicized it. And there was nobody living at Mesa Verde. The t- those uh, ruins, those empty places, had no people in them and no written records. And so this, this whole mystery and uh, uh, the, the mystery of prehistory sort of begins with the discovery of Mesa Verde, and it's been carefully nurtured ever since. Okay, and uh, it's been and so the the research began at Mesa Verde, and it was carried out. When did when did the excavations at Chaco Canyon start? When did when did when was Chaco basically come into the forefront? Uh, shortly after Mesa Verde, the same cowboy uh, Richard Wetherill, who who is credited with discovering um, the Cliff Palace and the cliff dwellings of Mesa Verde. Um, after he um, finished with Mesa Verde, he moved down to Chaco and started the excavations there in conjunction with the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And that was, uh, again, in the late 19th century, I believe that started. So it was sort of a one-two punch, but uh, there was a lot of public uh, um, media coverage for that time, anyway. And this is you know, all newspaper and illustrated weekly stuff. Uh, but not many publications that came out of that work uh, the publications and the scientific uh, um, excavations started a little later in both areas. By a little later, you mean approximately when? Uh, in Chaco Canyon, uh, ultimately, uh, Richard Wetherill's excavations were published in, the, I believe, the 1920s. But the Museum of New Mexico and uh, the Smithsonian Institution also fielded parties out there in the early 1900s, um, before World War One and immediately after World War One. At Mesa Verde, uh, became a national park, I believe, in 1906. Is that right, Corey? you remember? <laughs> yes, it's 1906. Do you, do you want to pick up the history of Mesa Verde archaeology there? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, as Steve, Steve mentioned, the Wetherill family, uh, actually, Richard Wetherill, the oldest brother, was, was uh, instrumental in, in beginning excavations both at Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon, and then his brothers actually continued that, that activity uh, in the Cayenta region as well. Uh, in 1906, uh, the American Antiquities Act was passed, and that was largely a result of uh, a foreigner, uh, Gustav Nordenschuld, who was a prince or a, from uh, Sweden, I believe. Anyway, he had come over to the United States. He'd heard about the, the rich finds, and the Wetherills guided him up to Mesa Verde, and he's credited with... with uh, digging a lot of the sites and actually writing probably the first the first actual report on work done in, in Mesa Verde. He was doing he was doing his work fairly scientifically or scientifically for the time, but he was exporting all he all of the, the rich finds he had to, to Sweden. And it was a group of uh, of um, a woman's society in Colorado Springs that got very upset up that that our uh, national heritage was being exported. And that led to the passage of the uh, American Antiquities Act in 1906. And it also coincided with Mesa Verde becoming a national park in 1906. And so that sort of uh, guided, uh, basically brought the public's attention and also the scientific community's attention to uh, places like Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon. And that uh, a lot of the uh, the information was being lost. Uh, collectors were taking it. It was in an effort for the United States government to try to protect some of these sites and also to learn more about them through more scientific 
uh, approaches, excavations, that sort of thing. Corey, jump us forward just a little bit so that we get into uh, more relatively recent archaeological excavations that are somewhat uh, uh, reminiscent of where we're going right now, what kind of excavations we're doing right now that would take us. When when does modern excavation start at Mesa Verde and Chuckle? Uh, well, that's, that can be debatable in terms of <laughs> modern archaeology. Uh, I guess you could say it would be when the scientific institutions, such as the, the, that Steve mentioned, the American Museum of Natural History, the National Geographic Society, uh, uh, Peabody Museum at Harvard University was very big in early southwestern excavations, and the southwest was seen as sort of a rich um, uh, testing ground for lots of uh, uh, archaeological techniques, theories, and and that sort of thing. Uh, and Ironically, both uh, both Mesa Verde and not ironically, but Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon both were made national parks. I mean, they were recognized early on for their archaeological and cultural significance, and were made national parks. And it was in an effort to try to interpret these remains and, and what was going on, what was Chaco, what was happening at Mesa Verde, how old are these things? Uh, the government sponsored and, and these uh, scientific institutions in the East sponsored a lot of excavations out there. Uh, following uh, the work at Chaco Canyon done by the Weatherills and the American Museum of Natural History, Neil Judd from the uh, under uh, funding from the National Geographic Society excavated. Uh, Pueblo Benito and and Pueblo del Arroyo, two of the larger sites in, in Chaco Canyon. And Gentlemen, later, uh, let me just cut uh, intercede here for a second. We will discuss the emergence of contemporary excavation techniques and the evolution, actually, of modern archaeology and archaeological interpretation. We get back here. This history is very, very intriguing, and we're going to discuss Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon in a more contemporary perspective when we get back after these points. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're 
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Joe Schuldenrein here with uh, our episode, second episode on the archaeology of the Southwest. We were discussing uh, the historical background to the, the magnificent sites of Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon. I just want to uh, bring this into some kind of perspective. In the 1960s, archaeological thinking started to expand into a more interpretive mode rather than just going after the findings and the glorious uh, architecture and what that looked like and why it was so spectacular into sort of a dis, uh, into sort of a, a long-term debate over what social organization was represented by these structures and by these organizational frameworks. Uh, Steve, if you want, if you might uh, talk a little bit about what Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon represented in terms of organizational settlements and what they meant in terms of the emergence of social organization and settlement. Well, Mesa Verde got the first attention, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, um, and the first public attention and the first scientific attention. Um, and it's a magnificent place uh, that has very large cliff dwellings. Uh, their villages are built into alcoves uh, on the sheer sandstone walls of the, of the cliffs. They're quite remarkable and romantic and mysterious. No one was living in them, and, and Richard Wetherill, when he, uh, cowboy who first found them, um, actually pushed the artifacts that he found uh, for sale as Aztec. He thought maybe this is where, you know, the old home of the Aztecs who moved from the north to the central Mexico. Um, that spurred the archaeologists to come out and say, hey, what's up with this? Because that's pretty pretty interesting. Um, and the initial archaeological findings were, no, probably not Aztecs. Uh, these are probably the, the ancestors of modern Pueblo Indian people who, who today live in, in villages, tr- very traditional villages in New Mexico and Arizona, like Hopi and Zuni, uh, uh, Acoma, uh, Taos, places like that. How many people lived in Chaco and in, in Mesa Verde? Um, well, in, in one site at Mesa Verde, like a cliff palace, you probably had a couple hundred people. It was a little village. Uh, Chaco, which is a little earlier, interestingly enough, in terms of time, uh, Mesa Verde, uh, the sites that you think of there are mostly from the 13th century, from, you know, like the 1200s. Chaco is really flourishing in the 1000s, in the 11th century. And at its peak, there may have been a couple thousand people in Chaco in uh, a settlement that was significantly more complex than Mesa Verde, the more complicated thing, complex politically and economically. When you say complex, what do you mean exactly? How were they organized? What kind of a social fabric was their political organization? Um, I'll answer that by starting at Mesa Verde. In Mesa Verde, everybody's house looks the same. Uh, Everybody lives in pretty much the same kind of a house. It's like five rooms and a little circular room out front that we call a kiva. And they're like... um, Cookie cutters. They're, they're, you know, they're, there's a lot of variability because they're all hand built, but they uh, they all lived in pretty much the same kind of houses. In Chaco, that wasn't the case at all. In Chaco, you have haves and have nots. You had the haves who lived in what, what the archaeologists call great houses, and there's a reason for that. They're huge, enormous, uh, big rooms, very expensively built, uh, over timbered. They're almost lavish, um, in the southwestern sense. And the other fifty percent of the people in Chaco lived in these normal little houses with five rooms and a little kiva out front. So there's really clear classes. There's two classes of people or two kinds of people anyway in Chaco, the folks that lived in these big expensive houses and then the folks that lived in normal houses. So these I, were stratified societies to some I think so, yeah. I think that you have well, effectively what are noble families living in the great houses that are very much like uh what was going on in Mesoamerica at exactly that same time. <laughs> 
families. Corey, give us give us an idea of how long uh, the periods of, of peak occupation occurred during the uh, during the peak Mesa Verde and Chaco Canyon occupation. Steve said that they overlap, but they weren't exactly contem- contemporaneous. Can you talk about no, that? I mean, they're, they're contemporaneous in that uh, you know the entire Southwest was occupied by what we would call you know Pueblo and peoples. Uh, beginning at the end of what we would call the basket maker times around, you know, five, six, six hundred AD, uh, mm-hmm. what are referring to sort of as ancestral Pueblo and which would include Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon and, 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 and all other, uh, sites across the sort of four corners region is from, you know, AD 700 to the late 1200, late, late 1200s. And people were living in Chaco Canyon and Mesa Verde throughout that entire time. I think what Steve is talking about and what, what you're referring to is sort of the, the fluorescence of, of those cultures. Uh, and, and it's interesting to note that, that Chaco Canyon is very, very different than, than Mesa Verde and very different than, than other things in the Southwest, uh, in terms of the grand, uh, structures that they have there and what Steve is seeing as, you know, stratified society. Uh, I mean, other archaeologists would probably disagree with that. Uh, I'm beginning to, beginning to think Steve has, has a good, has, Good idea of what's going on out there, but um, so so the, the cliff dwellings that we see there's, there's a lot more to Mesa Verde than cliff dwellings. I mean, people were living at Mesa Verde from AD 700 on. Uh, there was the people moved back and forth uh, onto and off of the Mesa, and in prior to living in the cliff dwellings, they were uh, most of the uh, population was clustered north of what we think of as Mesa Verde proper, out on what's called the Great Sage Plain, which was a wonderfully huge uh, agricultural rich rich area but we're talking about here from what I'm gathering about five six seven hundred years of peak occupation and then what happened and why did it happen well the area is pretty much deep, that whole area including both Chaco and Mesa Verde and most of northeastern Arizona most of southeastern Utah all of southwestern Colorado most of north northwest New Mexico everybody leaves by about 1300 AD um, this is with a big mystery uh, in the early days of archaeology. It was the mystery of what we called them the Anasazi back then, that the mystery of the Anasazi. Where did they go? Um, it's like somebody came by in a spaceship and sucked them all up or some, uh, something. Right, right. Uh, uh, there's been enormous strides in the last couple of decades in understanding what happened there. That, uh, that, that mystery is no mystery. If you talk to a modern Pueblo person that lived at Zuni or, or at Acoma or, or at any of the Rio Grande Pueblos, they'd say, you know, where did they go? Well, just hand me a road map. I'll show you there. And there's, we're, the Pueblo people are still here. They just moved. Um, right. Uh, major migration of tens of thousands of people out of that area to where they are now. Do we know why they moved? Well, uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing that that, that movement also was taking place in, during prehistory as well. I mean, I think uh, earlier on or in the past, uh, basically archaeologists tend to think that uh, populations were, were more static than they than what they appear to be. I mean, people move, moved around a lot, and uh, a lot of that was due to uh, changes in the environment. Uh, you know, uh, climatic, and I don't know if it's climatic change, but I mean, it was certainly uh, uh, major changes in, in drought and rainfall cycles that... Uh, Essentially, made made areas inhabitable that may not have been been able to you know support agricultural uh, uh, activities in the past, and vice versa. Then, as you know, things dried out, people people moved around, and in the late 1200s, there was you know a large a large drought. But I, people were moving prior to that. Uh, that just sort of exacerbated things, uh, I, I believe. 
you know, are we think are we thinking it's more environmental than anything or no? Well, Corey just made the point that that the the last migration out of there, and there were multiple movements back and forth into that region prior to that. The last migration out of there starts before this great drought of, of capital G, capital D, great drought of about 1275 to 1299, I believe, that a lot of people were leaving in large groups um, prior to that drought when times were actually not so bad up north. So there was a political or a spiritual or a, a non-environmental component to that, to that last movement out of the Four Corners. Maybe. This is not as simple. I mean, in the past, it was, oh, the great drought came, everybody moved out. And and what we're finding over, uh, having done a lot more research and looking at a lot more sites over a broader area, is that, is, as Steve mentioned, uh, the people were moving in, in, in mass quantities uh, prior to that great drought. What happened was the great drought was just sort of the final nail in the coffin. You know, it just I basically, uh, uh, that's ended up where they where they are today. Okay. They took out the lights and locked the doors, and the last people left. And was there any major transition culturally and, and, and an adaptive strategy after that um, that that uh, characterized subsequent peoples in the Southwest or the descendants of the Mesa Verde and Chaco populations? Uh, what would you first. say about that? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a watershed. Uh, about thir- The stuff that happened before 1300 A.D., and the history after after 1300 AD are um, very very different. I mean, the same people uh, they're doing very different things. Before 1300 AD, you had the rise of I think of uh, stratified societies and governments and things like that that didn't work. It didn't work, and people voted with their feet. Tens of thousands of people left the four corners, and when they reestablished themselves with people that were already living at modern pueblos. They went through a couple centuries of, of experimentation with different religious beliefs and um, very eclectic sorts of, of um, cosmological kinds of experiments to design societies where you wouldn't have kings and you wouldn't have governments anymore because they tried that and it didn't work. So how do we know this? How do we know this? How do you have? Uh, how do you, how do you get explanations and explanatory models for that? A lot of archaeology. I mean, there's a lot no, of okay. evidence to support that. I mean, I could I could spend the rest of the hour you know listing off evidence, which I don't think you want me to do, but there's like the watershed stuff, I mean, this is a, a, a verbal medium that we're in now that is very visual, but the, the art styles change enormously. From okay. These um, wonderful, uh, appealing black-on-white geometric designs on pottery that are very, uh, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but rigid and formal and repetitive, uh, but they're still really eye-catchers. That's before 1300. After 1300, they go to polychromes, and they go to these, these overall layouts that are very dynamic. Um, you don't see the repeated elements going all the way around a bowl. You see one big composition in the middle of the bowl that's swooping and swirling. So that's more than a, a change in a, a style or a fad or a fashion. I mean, that represents a change in cosmology, I think, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of evidence that would support that. I don't know what you think about that, Corey. No, I, I agree, and, and there's evidence that the, you know, the, the Kachina cult, uh, the Kachina religion, which is practiced by you know, the Hopis and the Zunis and some, some extent to the Grande Pueblos, which, you know, Modern-day people sort of associate, you know, Chinos with modern Pueblos, etc. That that actually is fairly late, uh, and again, that's sort of happening after this post-1300 or right around the 1300s when that sort of comes in. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence to support that as well. So, and so I would I would agree with that. And, and there's a lot more aggregation. People are are coming together in in larger, fewer but larger settlements across the Southwest. 
relocating completely. Is it possible to track the geographic movements? Do we have any record of geographic movements post-1300 A.D.? Uh, can you speculate on that a little bit, settlement patterns and, and changing demographics? There's some evidence that's really stark and dramatic where in in southern Arizona there are villages of people that look like they moved lock, stock, and barrel from the Pueblo areas of northern Arizona into a part of Arizona that wasn't Pueblo at all. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about Hohokam again for uh, the end of the hour. But you have these villages that are just transplanted and stick out like a sore thumb, um, hundreds of miles from their homelands. Uh, it's a little more subtle um, along the Rio Grande to the east, where what you see are people that are blending in. Uh, there's a spike in population, we can tell that, I mean, a big spike in population after 1300 in, among pueblos that are already there. They just, you know, just triples in size overnight. But the people that are moving in aren't retaining their old um, pottery styles and their old ways of building. They're... they're Moving into a community and they're blending in, so it's a little harder to see, but you can see that you can see it demographically. We'll be back after a few words, and I will continue discussing demographic change and the emergence of more modern, uh, prehis- uh, more more modern southwestern traditions and the transition from prehistory to historic times and the general uh, trend in archaeology in the southwest. After these words, thank you. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Shake it, 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 shake it
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We've been discussing about the archaeology of the South. We've been discussing the archaeology of the Southwest. And we had summarized a watershed time frame of around 1300 AD when populations dispersed from some of the major centers and there was a moist, diffuse distribution of peoples across the Southwest, uh, I would like to get your views, and I'm talking to Corey Bretternitz and Steve Lexen, about the later prehistoric traditions, specifically what we know as the Hohokam, the Anasazi, and the Mogollon traditions. Uh, Corey, would you start us off a little bit and explain the uh, differences between these traditions and how they emerged and what's characteristic of them? Uh, certainly. Uh, traditionally, I guess uh, early on, there was obviously difference, obvious differences in the types of sites that were being found, the types of pottery, etc. And basically, the occupants of the southern southern Arizona, essentially southern Arizona, below the the Mogollon Rim and and down into along the Mexican border, were referred to as the Hohokam culture, and these folks uh, uh, ex- lived in pit houses, uh, excavated above-ground structures using uh, adobe, and had sort of uh, red-on-buff pottery. Uh, the Anasazi is the uh, traditional cliff-dweller culture, if you will, that is that characterized by uh, Mesa Verde and some of the, the cliff dwellings in northeastern Arizona, southeast, uh, southeastern uh, Utah. And the Mogollon sort of came late into the... Uh, uh, the, the history of, of archaeology in the Southwest, and it was debated very hotly debated in the in the late 1930s and 1940s if if there was any was was such a thing called Mogollon. And basically, what Mogollon is 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 pueblo pueblos in the in the mountain regions. So it was they weren't cliff dwellings, they weren't Holocom, it was, well, what what are they? Is it a different culture? Uh, you know, is it a different adaptation of, of culture to, to an environment? Um, and so it's really, it sort of, it's sort of oversimplistic to, to think of Holocom Anasazi Mogion because uh, we're finding out that these people obviously were, were interacting with one another uh, contemporaneously, and then as archaeologists worked through the, through the through this past century, uh, of course, archaeologists like to name everything, and so every time somebody works in a different area, the pottery looks a little bit different, and the houses looked a little bit different. It was like, well, we should. This is a different people, and and really, what it, what it, it's it's not. It's just different uh, manifestations in, 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 uh, of 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 a, of a you know formative level tradition. The whole com is the area I'm, I've been working in mostly, and that that is. Uh, Quite a bit different than than either Mogollon or Anasazi, just even on a, on a general general level in terms of their adaptation to you know a very stark Sonoran desert. So it's more of a desert adaptation. Oh yeah, most definitely yeah. Uh, and the Holcom mastered were masters of their environment uh, in that they uh, were able to tame the flowing streams of the Salt River Valley, Salt and Gila Rivers, into the San Pedro River, and establish 
very extensive uh, and high, highly complex irrigation systems in the in the Phoenix in, in the greater metropolitan Phoenix area. Here, uh, we've traced out over 750 linear miles of, of prehistoric canal networks, and these these are systems that are that are highly integrated on both sides of the river, and and would have you know imply that there's a lot of cooperation in uh, interaction and social social organization to make a system such as that work. I mean, it's basically the largest irrigation system outside of, you know, outside of Mesoamerica. Tell us a little bit about the irrigation systems and their linkage to agricultural practice and, and what people cultivated and how they subsisted. Uh, well, like I said, these are huge uh, irrigation systems. The uh, main canals are you know, on the order of, of, of you know, three meters across, uh, ten, ten feet across, ten feet deep, and uh, can be traced out uh, across the landscape for 18, 18, 20 miles. And there are systems on the north side of the river and the south side of the river, and it looks like along at the headgates of these of these canal systems are, are large major villages that apparently were uh, controlling, you know, the the distribution of water down these uh, irrigation systems and along the systems are, are other large uh, communities consisting of, you know, several hundreds if not a thousand or more more persons and then dinner dispersed between those are smaller, uh, you know, smaller sites with uh, extended families living, etc. And, and we have evidence in Phoenix Basin here that they were growing, obviously growing corn uh, and beans and, uh, and cotton. Uh, we have a lot of evidence for growing cotton here in, in southern Arizona, and, and cotton still being grown here. And what do we know about the adaptations of the other non-Hohokam peoples at about the same time, the Anasazi and the Mogollon? I can pick up on the Mogollon. That's where I'm working these days. Sure, um, please. In southwest New Mexico, uh, there's a Mogollon uh, area, and that name Mogollon is, is the name of a colonial governor, uh, Don Juan Flores, Jose de Mogollon. Uh, a district of this Mogollon area called Membris, after the Spanish word for willows, is the Willow River, Membris River, where they, they're famous for their black and white pottery that shows uh, people doing things. And probably every listener here, if they're interested in Southwest archaeology, has seen this pottery or seen designs derived from this pottery um, in the 11th century. And those folks, the Membris, had very large villages of you know, maybe three or 400 people, um, living like Anasazi people to their neighbors to the north, stone pueblos with black and white pottery, but farming with canals like their their neighbors to the west, the Hohokam. So they were had a Hohokam infrastructure and an Anasazi or, or ancestral Pueblo uh, way of life. And a lot of really interesting things came out of that, that that persist even today in modern Pueblos. But another really interesting thing that came out of that possibly um, was the greatest center in the, in the Mogollon area was actually not in the United States, but right across the border in Chihuahua, because these these ancient peoples didn't, you know, the international boundary wasn't there in the 11th century. Um, it is irrelevant to understanding the archaeology. So there's a great center called Casas Grandes. Uh, it's about 60 miles south of the border. It was the last great city in the southwest that I think the members people uh, migrated to and were part of the base population along with local people in the Chihuahua area. It was quite a remarkable place that uh, had Mesoamerican-style ball courts and Lots and lots and lots of uh, Mexican and Mesoamerican artifacts, objects, um, all the wealth in the world there. Uh, an amazing place that's now a national park that you can go visit in Mexico. 
What about the interaction between Mesoamerica and the American Southwest? What can you tell us about population movements and cultural interactions and where they're picking up settlement similarities and uh, how that dynamic manifested itself and, and where are we chronologically at that time point? You want to start this one off, Corey? Or? Yeah, go ahead, Steve. This is this is okay. your uh, area of interest. Um, the Holocom uh, civilization in under Phoenix and Tucson uh, today that Corey was just talking about um, had a lot of very direct links to Mesoamerica or to West Mexico, or they had ball courts and they had uh, any number of of items of material culture, everyday material culture that really looked like things out of West Mexico. Um, the the Cultures of the north, the, the Chaco and Mesa Verde, certainly were well aware of Mesoamerica, and the people in Chaco Canyon, uh, very recent work by Patty Crown and, and uh, Dorothy Washburn, has demonstrated that cacao, the, the chocolate bean, was actually uh, imported into Chaco and probably other places up north. So they were well aware of Mesoamerica, but it wasn't nearly as direct as you know, maybe as a historical connection that Hohokam had with the south. So the cacao came from Mesoamerica? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's a tropical uh, tropical bean. And the, the other thing that's uh, quite remarkable are macaws, uh, these colorful birds that are tropical birds that you find in, in some numbers at Chaco Canyon. And a few, there's a few in the Hocom. And quite so a few we have the so we have these extensive communication networks and and transport systems that are moving goods and services actually around between these cultures and there's a lot of diffusion and a lot of movement of people so it's pretty sophisticated I'm guessing I I think so yeah yeah uh, Corey would you yes no it's, it was it was much more dynamic than uh, than it was uh, initially thought mm-hmm. it was well we've got we've got quote unquote Mesoamerican traits and what does that mean you know uh, we have we've Early archaeologists were noticing these things in the in the in the whole calm region, as Steve has mentioned, uh, and in Chaco Canyon, certain uh, items and architecture was sort of uh, thought to have you know, Mesoamerican connections, etc. Uh, but at that point, I think uh, we were sort of thinking myopically uh, and not, you know. Uh, not looking across the international border, but also not looking between cultures or, or between state lines. And I think all the, a lot of the archaeological work that's been done, extensive, extensive work that's been done just in the, just in the last 20 years, uh, in this, in the American Southwest has, has shed a lot of, of new data on the fact that, uh, uh, these people were not isolated at all. Uh, and there was a lot of goods and services, ideas, ideologies, and things that were moving back and forth, uh, Throughout the entire occupation of the of the Southwest, or at least the, the portion we're talking about, you know, post uh, certainly post uh, 1000, and maybe Steve would say even earlier than that. And to some extent, it's a two-way traffic. I mean, there's a lot of turquoise in uh, Mesoamerica, especially after about 900 A.D. It's a very valued stone down there, and most of that turquoise is probably coming from mines in the Southwest, like the mine at Cerrito, south of Santa Fe, or Old, Old Hachita um, in the Mogollon area, and a bunch of other mines. So um, there's a flow of goods both ways, and presumably people carrying those goods and bringing back ideas both ways. So we know that there's a lot of north-south uh, transportation, communication, and commerce. What about moving eastward towards the Midwestern centers, the uh, the collapse in the southwest that we talked about earlier at around 13 AD is somewhat similar to the collapse of Mississippian societies in the Midwest. Do we have any indications of commerce between the Midwest and the greater southwest, or is that more speculative? Uh, the obsidian... Uh, which is a black volcanic rock that gets used for uh, 
uh, arrowheads and you know very fine stone tools. Uh, there's some indication that the obsidian procurement back the, the sources that people back like in the Mississippi Valley and the Mississippi drainage were using shift from going Yellowstone early, which is way north of the southwest, to southwestern sources later. But there's really not a lot of hard evidence of, of, of contact between the two. But I'm, I'd be stunned if they didn't know about each other. Very good. Um, I think at that this point we're going to take yet another break, and we're going to come back and continue our discussion on the prehistory of the Southwest. And I think we're going to cross over into historic times and try to look at contemporary archaeological practices and what we're learning about archaeology as we move along. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein, uh, hosting Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I will welcome call-ins. The lines are open. The number is 866-472-5788. I've been talking with my special guests uh, on Southwestern Archaeology, Corey Bretternitz and Steve Lexen. Uh, moving along a little bit to the historic times, we, somewhere around the 16th century, we are having incursions of the Euro-Americans. The Spanish are coming in, and all of a sudden everything is changing in this part of the world. Uh, we know certainly that of all the indigenous cultures in North America, the tribes of the Southwest have probably retained, uh, their their integrity and have maintained themselves as individual and unique groups uh, very, very distinctly. Um, can we track any lineages and ancestral lines between the later prehistoric people and the groups we now know as the Navajo, the Zuni, and the Hopi? Uh, Corey, you want to start with that one? 
Uh, well, I could uh, talk a little more about the, uh, the the southern area. I think Steve is probably a little more versed okay. in talking about that uh, for the for the Four Corners area. I mean, clearly, obviously, the, the Navajo and Apache or Athabascan groups, uh, not Puebloan at all, but more uh, and fairly recent in, in, incursions into the southwest, uh, just just prior to the Spanish. Uh, but there's a very rich oral traditions, uh, oral histories for all these groups, uh, where we began by talking about prehistory and how this is before written records, but that doesn't mean there wasn't history, and, it's, and it doesn't mean that a history isn't remembered and passed on. Um, they're very detailed histories, often at the level of a clan, which is you know bigger than a family but smaller than a village, very important uh, social unit in Pueblos and, and in, for the Navajo people, Navajo Nation. And those clan histories... Um, are remembered in great detail by by native people. And I should point out, I'm not a native person, um, but I've been privileged to hear some of these stories. And we can see archaeology can see the real big movements, like when tens of thousands of people leave the Mesa Verde area. Yeah, we can see that one, but we have a hard time seeing these smaller scale things that the clan histories recount, where a clan goes from here to there to here and back again, and they learn something here, and uh, that doesn't work out. And they move over, you know, in the next valley, and then they wind up at Hopi, or they wind up at, at Zuni, or they wind up in the Rio Grande. Um, those are hard to track, and I think most archaeologists, you know, would we benefit enormously from hearing uh, those traditional histories when when Indian people care to share them with us, Native people care to share them. Um, but it's kind of hard tracking tracking individual clans. It's more of these patterns of yeah, this is a period when people were moving all over the place after the 13th century, uh, 1300, for example. Uh, but it, it's, it's so busy with so many people moving in so many different directions, it all becomes sort of an archaeological blur, and then it settles down again. Um, right. For individual places like like Chaco, every pueblo I've talked to, except one, has some memories of that place. Um, I doubt if all the clans at every pueblo were at Chaco, but they were part of its region. They're part of its history. Just like you, you may never go to Washington D.C., but it's part of your your heritage, it's part of your your environment. And so, a place like Chaco, I think, probably belongs to all those people, probably including a few Navajo clans too. And I may get in trouble for saying that. Uh, just along those lines, so now we're starting to see obviously that in, in, in the past 50 years, probably a little less than that, there's been a tremendous amount of archaeological work done in the Southwest because of development and because of the uh, significant presence of the Park Service and, and the encouragement of tourist industries. And we're seeing a fair amount of overlap between archaeologists and Native Americans. And it, it, what, what is the nature of that relationship? What is the inter, interface between archaeologists and Native Americans as, as basically Euro-Americans are starting to excava- have been excavating these sites and, and basically have the closest thing to informants that we could possibly get people who can at least reconstruct part of their lineages going back several many decades and possibly even centuries. Uh, where do we see that relationship emerging? Corey? I think uh, that relationship is, is getting better. Uh, it has been strained in the past, obviously, and Native peoples uh, feel very strongly about these these sacred sites. I mean, archaeological sites are a finite resource. You know, there 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 are X number of them, and every day they're being uh, being uh, they're, they're disappearing under freeways and uh, uh, cities expanding and that sort of thing. So uh, it's. It's uh, in the past. It has been somewhat of a contentious relationship in that uh, archaeologists, you know, sort of just felt like they could just go anywhere and excavate anywhere, and we were, we're this is for the 
want to we want to excavate this large pueblo uh, without really even sort of asking permission of the people who descended from that pueblo, uh, and so probably you know. 10, 15, 20 years ago, this sort of came to a head where our, where, where Indians basically, uh, native peoples found, sort of found their voice and said, no, wait a second, you know, we just don't want you out there digging up every, every site just because you, you're interested in it. Uh, and it has settled itself out, I think, now to where, uh, there are a lot of, uh, native, uh, Tri- tribal programs. There are tribal archaeological programs. The Navajo tribes had an archaeological uh, program uh, in, as part of the tribe for you know 40 years. Uh, some of the tribes in Arizona and New Mexico have their own archaeologists. Uh, there are a lot of uh, native peoples that are becoming trained as archaeologists. And the dialogue, uh, Steve mentioned, you know, we have these living descendants, and, and the dialogue between uh, you know talking to to uh, Contemporary Native Americans as uh, as to uh, you know, what their what their histories are and incorporating that into our into our research and there are, there are a number of examples uh, where this has worked out uh, extremely beneficial to to both the Native peoples and and archaeologists by by bringing bring bring them all together and saying well we found this is what we think is going on what do you think is going on well uh, it's been very uh, very enlightening and and I think that that. Uh, Relationship is becoming uh, one of of more trust. Still not, you know. There's still some some distrust there, but uh, I think it's beginning getting better over time. Steve, what are you seeing? Uh, Certainly the same things uh, that Corey's talking about there. That um, on all uh, almost every excavation that takes place now, there's always consultations. Some of it it's legally mandated, most, but I think it would be happening anyway. Uh, we do a lot of work on private lands uh, which, where particular federal laws that would, would uh, entail uh, consultations with tribes don't apply, but we still try and cons- the university still tries to consult with, or does consult with tribes, let them know what we're doing, what they think about it, what they, you know, what they would like us to do, not do or do. Um, in the kind of work that, that Corey does and that I, I used to do, um, where there are federal laws that are involved and some state laws, Consulting with tribes is is part of the process of excavation, even before you start sticking a shovel in the ground. And and Corey could probably tell you stories about you know having having done that very recently about how that works. Uh, it's uh, almost formalized at this point with bureaucracies among the larger tribes that can afford bureaucracies, uh, where they have people that do this um, very very professionally. <laughs> And in other tribes that are smaller, they can't afford that kind of, you know, uh, governmental structure. Um, it's a little less formal, but uh, in both cases, it's uh, very rewarding. And I, I, Corey, would you agree? Yes. No, I would agree very much so. Um, and uh, like I said, there are, there are more uh, native native peoples that are being being trained as archaeologists, and and there's and, and in terms of uh, uh, interpretation, uh, tourism, uh, there's a there's a big. Uh, I mean, they're sitting on top of a lot of uh, interesting, interesting sites that it can be developed for, for for tourism and for interpretation. And a lot of tribes are going back and having in sort of in-house tribal programs to to teach the younger people what some of the traditions are. Because during the 40s and 50s, some of this. 
sort of turned away from uh, the traditional stuff, and you know, the government was sort of trying to, to force people, force Native Americans to become, you know, mainstream Americans. And so there's there's a generation or two out there where where some of the stuff has been lost, and a lot of tribes are trying to trying to get that back now, and using not only uh, their own oral tradition to teach their children, but sort of archaeology as a as a way to to teach that tradition. And at that point, I'm going to have to sort of bring us to an end. I want to thank my guests, Steve Lexon, Corey Bredernitz, for enlightening us on the archaeology of one of the most exciting places in the world, the American Southwest. Next week, we'll journey eastward across the continent and back to my home base of New York City. We'll examine the archaeology between, beneath the time-trodden streets of Manhattan and the coastline that defines New York Harbor. Our guests will include Amanda Sutphin of the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, as well as representatives from the city's private sector and university archaeological communities. Until then, thanks so much for listening. And remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Signing off, this is Joe Schuldenrein, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 20th Century Archaeology. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.